Um, so we're going to be in 1 Peter 2. Uh, we're going to be in the first 12 verses. Uh, if you are using one of the Bibles that we had in the back, it's on page 657, I believe. Um, so that will be a quick flip right there. Uh, if you guys could all stand as I read God's Word. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices and acceptable, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they do not, because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Pray with me as Davey comes up. Father, I just thank you so much for your inerrant word, Lord, um, that you would so humble your perfect decrees, your perfect wisdom, and your perfect plan for salvation into a human language that we might understand, we might be able to read and know it, Lord, uh, that it might be preserved throughout the generations. God, so I just pray as we stand in the tradition of um, Christians before us, Lord, uh, that Davy would come preach the word faithfully as it has been given to us, um, and that we would learn to glorify you more every day um, and love you more for the sacrifice that your son made. In your name I pray the same. Amen. Tyler said, if you have not turned there yet, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. That is where we'll be spending all of our time this morning. I want you guys to think of an event in your life that has radically changed you. Radically changed you. Maybe for some of you that event has happened within the last two weeks. And it's that transition from high school to college. From living with your parents to now living on your own. For others, it might be that transition from college to the, the real world, where you get your first job and understand what it actually means to be busy with a nine to five and provide for yourself and try to figure out community outside of the college setting. For others, it might be that getting married, going from being single to now a husband or a wife. You have to share the bed with somebody now. You have to make decisions thinking about what does this mean for the other person in that relationship. You see, in each of these situations, your life is forever changed. 
And with each of these changes come a new status and a new role. Your status went from a high school student to a college student. And your role went from preparing for college to actually preparing for your future occupation and the rest of your life. Your status went from being a college student to a real-world adult. Your role went from studying for tests to figuring out how to pay the bills and to be an adult. Your status went from being single to a covenantal relationship with your spouse. Your role went from caring and providing simply for yourself to caring and providing for someone else as well. You see, for me, one of the biggest changes in my life that radically changed me was the moment I became a dad. In the course of nine months, I went from childless to now being a father. We went from a family of two to a family of three. And with that, my status and role radically changed. For my status was now dad. And I now and forever will be Ivy May's dad. You see, with that status, I actually entered a world I didn't even really know existed. I'm now part of the dad club. So it's like totally cool for me to make dad jokes because I'm a dad, so I can do that. And it's cool for me to get the dad bod going because I'm a dad. <laughs> and even as I walk around town now with Ivy May, you realize you're in this club because people just look at you, smile, and give you a little head nod, and you're like, I know you're not looking at me, you're looking at my baby. But you enter this club that you didn't even know was a reality until you're there. And not only has my status changed, but my role has radically changed too. Because all of a sudden, I'm changing diapers every day of my life. It becomes normal to send poop pictures to my wife. <laughs> and I can tell you, we never did that prior to a baby. You see, I help her get dressed. I help her stay safe throughout the day. And ultimately, I'm trying to point her to the love of Jesus Christ. You see, this life event has radically changed who I am. And yet there's a life event that actually produces more radical change than any of those events I talked about so far. And that radical change comes through the gospel. And that's ultimately what Peter is getting at today. The main topic, the main thing that we're going to walk through today is that transformed by the gospel, we have been given a new status and a new role. We have been forever changed. We have been transformed by the gospel. Let's pick up in verse 1. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So again, Peter begins in chapter 2 really just picking up where he left off. And it's important to note that as we read our Bibles, we see, you know, we see chapters and we see verse numbers. But in reality, this is just one continuous letter. And so he's just continuing the conversation he's been having. Where he's saying, hey, you've been born again by the word of God in, in chapter 123. He said, strive towards brotherly love in, in verse 22. And he's urging us ultimately to rid ourselves of these things so that we can protect our family. Ultimately saying, hey, these are the type of sins that actually tear the very social fabric of a church. It's 
love that binds us. And these are the things that actually pull us apart. Because he's saying, see, for malice or for ill will, it actually destroys the sense of harmony between brothers and sisters. Deceit and hypocrisy ultimately create a disingenuousness and, and actually pulls apart the love we have for one another as we actually throw out lies about others. You know, envy is ultimately longing for, for the downfall of somebody else. It's ultimately usually so I can benefit at somebody else's expense. And slander is the spreading of, of falsehoods and disparaging others. And he says, put away all of those things and rather long for the spiritual milk, the pure spiritual milk. You see, in this section, the primary command is actually the longing that he calls us to. He focuses actually less on the, on the put away and more on what we should long or crave for. And that is the spiritual milk. He says to be like a newborn child. For it is that pure spiritual milk that has transformed us and will continue to transform us day in and day out. You see, the imagery he uses of a newborn child is absolutely beautiful and so spot on. Because with it, he's saying you've been born again. There's this newness of life. You went from death to life. You are now a child of God. As well as he wants to emphasize the weight and necessity of this longing. I mean, think about when, it, when a newborn is hungry. It cries and cries and cries until it's able to get that food. And then once it's fed, it's not much time later that it cries again in a longing and a hunger for food. For in that it has its nourishment. In that it has its satisfaction, its comfort. And he's saying we in the same way ought to be people that crave for that spiritual milk. It nourishes them. It soothes them. And so what is the spiritual milk that he speaks of? It is the word of God. It's the unadulterated and uncontaminated, rational and reasonable word of God, the pure word. I mean, think of 1 Timothy 3 where he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, it's God's word and his word alone that grows us into salvation. See, God's word is not simply entry into the kingdom, but it's the way of the kingdom. For it is God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that takes us from death to life and literally makes us new, reborn, and it's a gospel that matures and grows us. And Peter ends the section saying, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. See, Peter in this moment, he's not as much casting doubts into the people's minds of asking, well, do you actually know the Lord at all? But rather, he's, he's encouraging them to contemplate the idea, have you experienced the kindness and goodness of God? And he's confident in that moment as he's talking to these exiles that, that they will answer in the infirm, affirmative that, that they have. You know, one theologian, Thomas Schreiner, says, believers should long for the Lord is indeed that they have tasted or experienced his kindness. 
Longing to grow spiritually comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord, an experience of his kindness and goodness. Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty or an alien moralism. The desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. The reality is when we taste that Christ is sweet, we see that all other things in our life are bitter. So this leads us to the question, what are we longing for? What is it that that we crave? Do I long or crave for the gospel? Would I say that it is that pure spiritual milk in my life? Do I hunger for it like an infant? Do we consume the gospel and then a few hours later desire more? Or is it just a little checklist throughout the day? It's a pill we throw in our mouth and then move on. Is it a nibbling at the word of God? Or an actual consuming? Do we taste the word of God and see that it is sweeter than honey? I know I've been challenged by Peter's words this week because there's many moments in my life where I feel like a malnourished infant. I think we live in a generation where it's almost easier to actually read books on the gospel, books on theology, on the Bible, rather than actually just sit in the very book they're speaking of, the book that produces life. I started reading uh, Calvin's Institutes with some people this week. Um, And in it, he says, if we think of how inclined the human mind is to forget God, how easily it is led into air." By what flights of fancy it dreams up, hour by hour, new and counterfeit religions, we may readily understand how necessary it was for the heavenly doctrine to be couched in written form, lest it perish through forgetfulness, or be lost through error, or be corrupted by the impudence of man. How amazing is it that we have the word of God? like physically before us. We have it here, we have it on our phones, we have it in various versions. I mean, that's the reality that we are blessed in of being in the 21st century. Yet we need to take advantage of that and consume it day in and day out. To be a Christian is to be a person of the word. We want to be like infants longing for God's word. And so I encourage you that if you're here this morning and you're like, I I know that, but it's not there. I'm struggling. I really do encourage you to talk to God and to pray to him and to ask for a hunger and a thirst for his word. To be like the deer that pants for water, to long for scripture. To ultimately ask God to say, God, I want your word to be so sweet that all other things in my life taste bitter. That's the reality that God wants in all of our lives. He will be faithful to produce that. You see, it's through this this beautiful and pure spiritual milk that we have been transformed. It's through the gospel. And the reality is that the gospel radically changes us, and with that change comes a new status and a new role. 
Let's begin by looking at that new status. We're going to read verses 4 through 10. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this living stone that Peter speaks of is Jesus Christ. He was the one rejected by man, yet chosen by God. And in verses 6 through 8, Peter makes that clear by by pointing us back to Old Testament passages in Isaiah and Psalms, showing us that this reality is not something new, but it's been destined from the beginning of time. That God is the one that laid Christ as the cornerstone at Zion. And I, I was a CEM major at Oregon State for about one term, so I feel like I know a lot about buildings. Not, very not true. But I do know how essential the cornerstone is for a building, especially in that day and age. Because it was out of that cornerstone and its placement that the building actually took shape and form. The cornerstone was always the first stone laid because out of it, they were able to figure out the angles and dimensions to keep a building within its proper structure. Jesus is the cornerstone of our life, of our church, is essential. And Peter says ultimately there's two responses to Christ as cornerstone. One, you believe that Jesus is the living stone of God. And he says those who believe that will not be put to shame. Ultimately meaning that you will be vindicated on the last day. As Christ was resurrected, so will you be resurrected. For what is true of Christ is true of you. You see, the other response is to actually reject Christ. He says to stumble over him. And this stumbling is not like walking down a sidewalk and you're not paying any attention and, and you know, there's that little lip and all of a sudden you hit it and fall. No, rather, he says that this stumbling is you see it in front of you And yet you continually drag your feet until you hit it and stumble forward. You see, Peter's emphasizing that it is a rebellion against God. It's a disbelief of the gospel and fighting against God's word. It's an unwillingness to submit to the Lord's will. Peter even says that these people were destined to do that in verse 8. 
And it's in this moment that Peter emphasizes God's sovereignty to really comfort his readers. He's ultimately assuring them that in the midst of an evil world, God's control is, is not separate from that. God is still in control through all of it. God still reigns and will forever reign. And even those who oppose him and don't believe him cannot stop God. You see, for those who believe Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone, they are forever changed. And what is that new status that they are brought into? Peter says that we are a spiritual house being built up into a holy priesthood. Ultimately, we're a building and a priesthood. So what is this spiritual house? He's actually referring back to temple language, appointing you back to the Old Testament to identify the church as God's new temple, the place where God dwelt. Peter echoes actually the language of Paul in Ephesians, where Paul says, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, believers, we are God's dwelling place through his Spirit. Like how amazing and profound is, and is this? That in reality, we as followers of Christ are never far from him. Because that is a spiritual house. He actually resides within us. Like that is the God that we serve. With Christ as the cornerstone, the foundational piece, we are a living structure being built up together. You see, it's Christ as the cornerstone that actually makes the Christian church unique to a Mormon church or to a mosque or to a Jewish temple. It is Christ that is essential for us to be a spiritual building. And he says, we are, the, we are the living stones. Living meaning alive in Christ and stones really emphasizing the plurality of that. That Peter emphasizes the communal elements of this reality. If you notice, he says that we are building up into a house, not a pillar. You cannot be a house without other bricks around you, touching you on all sides. We cannot neglect community, because we actually need one another to build the spiritual house. We need one another to be the church. And he says, you're a holy priesthood. You see, this section is saturated with Old Testament references and allusions, as Peter makes clear that, that we as followers of Christ have become the people of God. He uses language directly from the Mosaic Covenant in, in Exodus 19, which the fun thing is we've been walking through the covenants, and so some of this will be a little refresher for you guys. See, because in Exodus 19, as, as ultimately God's speaking to Israel, he uses the same language that Peter uses here. As a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. See, he's bringing the reality of Israel in the New Testament and bringing the reality of the church and showing who the church is today. As Schreiner says, he says, the church does not replace Israel, but it does fulfill the promises made to Israel and to all those 
Jews and Gentiles who belong to the true Israel are now part of the people of God. And he said that this priesthood is, is a holy priesthood. Remember last week as Tim spoke, he, he referenced, be holy for I am holy. Holiness involves a separation and a, and a consecration. It's a separation from sin, and it's a consecrating yourself to God's glory. And so as priests, we act as ambassadors to God. We are chosen by God and serve the people and ultimately point people to our risen Lord on God's behalf. See, Peter makes it clear that, that our, our priestliness doesn't actually come from our own doing. Because I'm never going to actually be good enough to be the best priest. But actually he says it's through spiritual sacrifices that are through Jesus Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone that makes us a nation of priests. It is Christ and Christ alone in which our sacrifices are actually worthy of being given. For apart from Christ, we are in utter darkness. But through Christ, we are brought into the marvelous light. Apart from Christ, we are not a people. But through Christ, we have been made God's people. Apart from Christ, we are without mercy. Yet through Christ, we have received mercy in abundance, a mercy that is new every morning. And once again, the, the priesthood language emphasizes the communal element. He doesn't say you're a nation of priests, but it's a priesthood. It's bringing you in together. You cannot be a priest alone. You see, in the Old Testament, there was only one tribe of Israel. They were priests. Yet through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are all part of the priesthood. So yes, we individually exercise our priestly functions, but always as members of a group who exercise those same functions together. See, Peter's ultimately calling us to embrace and emphasize the community of God. As a spiritual house and a priesthood, as a chosen race and a holy nation, it is impossible to do any of those things alone. You see, these verses completely negate the idea that so easily falls into our culture of it's my church is me, God, and the forest. I feel closest to God when I go out to nature, and so therefore I feel no value in needing to be part of this community. Or it's me, God, in a coffee shop. Or it's me, God, in a podcast. See, it completely negates this family picture. The reality is an isolated Christian is not living out God-given identity. The isolated Christian is ultimately not a healthy Christian. Yet in the West, we, we over-personalize our individual relationship with God. And, and yes, we have an individual relationship with God. But, it, but it's always part of the new race, the new nation, the new family, the church. I mean, think about it this way. You get adopted into a family, and you decide that the only, it's a big family, and you decide that the only person you're going to hang out with in that family is the dad. And so family get-togethers happen. You're like, eh, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. But then when you go, you're like, hey, dad, I just want to talk to you. And you, you pull him aside from everybody else. 
Your dad's birthday comes around, they throw a, they throw a party. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to go to that because I'm just going to get coffee with my dad later so I can just focus on just me and him. You see, it sounds ridiculous to say it in that context, and yet that's so often how we turn our relationship with God. Yeah, I don't need the family. I'm just here for dad. Yet to be here for dad is to be here for the family. It's not just me and God, but it's we as the priesthood and we as the spiritual house. I mean, the language in the New Testament is communal. The majority of the letters were written to churches, emphasizing community. The very fact that we even serve a Trinitarian God, a God that exists three in one, emphasizes the importance of community. God exists in community and calls us to exist in the same way. Therefore, I urge you to embed yourself in the community of God. Embed yourself in a local church. And whether that be the branch or another church in Corvallis, we just want you to be embedded into the family. We would love to have you here, but there are many solid churches in Corvallis that love and proclaim Jesus and his gospel every week. And we would love to point you to those churches. Yeah, I encourage you that if the branch is your home, pursue membership. Pursue stepping into a covenantal relationship with us. You see, membership is not something scary, and it's not this, oh, you get a little card, and every week you come, you swipe it, and over time you get points, so you can buy our cool gear. You see, it's something very different than how we envision membership today. You see, membership is ultimately us saying, this is the family of God, and this is my family, and I'm a part of it. I love these people, and these people love me. And so therefore, I, I'm willing to submit to my brothers and sisters as they submit to Christ. It's ultimately saying, I am going to be a Christian with these people. And I'm going to link arms with them. And I'm actually going to do it publicly. Like, I'm going to let people know this is who I'm a part of. You are one of us. That's what the church is saying. In that moment of acknowledging membership, you are one of us. Welcome into the holy priesthood. Welcome into the church. Now live for Christ as we collectively live for Christ. And so if the branch is your home and you're considering that, next week we have branch class literally right after our gathering. It'll be upstairs. And it's really the first step towards membership is you get to hear from us as, as elders what the branch is about, our story, who we are, our core values, our mission statement, what we believe. And I encourage you guys to, to take note of that and to actually come and to partake. And I think the easy thing is, especially for college students, be like, well, I'm not here that long. Or I'm only here for, for nine months out of a year. I'm only here for four years total. But the reality is, is God's calling you to the family regardless of how long you're here for. I mean, you're not going to look at your college experience and be like, well, I'm only here for nine months, so I'm not going to build any friendships. I'm only here for four years, so I'm not going to talk to anybody. Like, that reality doesn't make sense, yet we equate that to our spiritual life and say, I'm going to go AWOL and just kind of show up and do things. Yet I encourage you to join the family because you're part of that priesthood, so live out that reality. He gives us an amazing and beautiful status through the gospel. And it's ultimately calling us to embrace that. 
Yet not only do we have a new status as, as this spiritual building, as this priesthood, but, but through our status, we have been given new roles as well. The role of the priesthood, it says in first five, verse 5, is that you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Then here's your role. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As the priesthood, our role is to offer spiritual sacrifices. And you see, our, our role hinges on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is, it is through Christ and Christ alone that this sacrifice is even pleasing or acceptable to God. You see, it is through Christ on the cross being the ultimate sacrifice, dying the death we deserve, that we can actually stand before God and present anything in our life as worthy. In the Hebrews, it says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Our holiness, our, our pleasing to God comes through Christ and his blood spilled and his body broken for us. A worthiness rests alone in Christ. And our role is to give glory to God. God's glory is our goal. You see, this, this radically changes our role because no longer is it to elevate myself, to magnify my self-worth or the interests that I have, but rather it's to magnify the one that gave me life the one that restored me. As Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who live in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Like that is our role, is to live for Christ. Because of what he has done, it's the only appropriate response we have. See, see, love and sacrifice of Christ leads to a response if we've actually acknowledged what it means. Jonathan Lehman says, true love is from God, through God, and to God. Or think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God forever. That is the life of a Christian. And, and to offer spiritual sacrifices, we, we have an audible and a visual role in that. You see, it's out of the overflow of our heart. It is out of the reality that we have come from darkness and into light that we will live radically different, both audibly and visually. And so what does it look like to live different audibly? In verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. What's our audible difference? Proclaim the excellencies of God. That takes form simply in, in, in two ways. Through worship and evangelism. You see, we worship God when we proclaim his excellencies. That means as we come on a Sunday... And as we sing corporately, that is proclaiming worship to God. 
And I encourage you that Sunday is not to be the only time, but to throughout the week, saturate yourself in praises to God through, through reading his word, through listening to songs, through meditating on what he has done. You see, because declaring his excellencies appropriately reorients our gaze from self to him, the only one that is worthy of any praise. You see, it's, it's not just thanking him for his deliverance, but it's adoring him as the God who delivers. And notice Peter doesn't say, hey, if you have, an, if you have a beautiful or eloquent voice, then I want you to proclaim the excellencies. But no, he, he, he says, hey, this is for all people. If we are followers of Christ, we are proclaimers of who he is. We proclaim with a bold declaration. Um, I loved having our kids in our, in our worship gatherings over the last month or so. And one of my favorite parts of the gathering is when I'm not preaching and I'm able to sit in the back corner over here uh, by the five houses. Because if you've been able to sit back by them, Julia Fifehouse just belts out the words to the songs. Like, it's absolutely amazing to see a five-year-old just, I don't even care who's here. I'm going to sing as loud as I can and as proud as I can. Like, it's a beautiful image, though I think really of, of what Paul's getting at when he's saying, proclaim the excellencies of God. From the mouth of babes, proclaim it with pride, with joy, with satisfaction. Not worrying about what others around you are going to hear or think, but knowing that to bring glory to God is to proclaim his excellencies, and I live for his glory. Adoration is our response to the grace of God. And in another way in which we live different audibly and proclaiming those excellencies is to evangelize, actually share the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when we study the, word, the gospel word group in Scripture, we see that gospel is actually declared through heraldic proclamation, through a herald proclaiming boldly, proudly, announcing, preaching, because God's news is spectacular. And in reading a book, um, Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark, um, he speaks on First Peter. And again, it's, it's challenged me as I, as I think through, what does this look like today? What does this look like in our context? And ultimately, have me wrestle through this idea of a proclamation of the gospel versus so often the language we use of, of sharing the gospel. This quote's going to be on the screen. And he says, you see, sharing typically involves the act of giving something to someone who desires it. Children share or, or don't share Legos with other kids who want them. Friends share a great cookie recipe with another friend who asks for it. Or we might share money with those holding a cardboard sign at the street corner. In each case, we share with others because they're asking for what we possess. But the reality is, few people are ever begging us to share the gospel with them. Far more than just sharing, evangelism involves testifying to Christ, warning, persuading, defending, pleading, and calling. And I, I was struck with how often 
I don't proclaim the gospel because I'm waiting for that moment to share. When somebody wants to receive it, and even then, it's hesitation. Yet here, it's a call to, in season and out of season, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the heart of evangelism is ultimately doxological. It's, it's a praise to God. Our praises bear witness to the watching world. Again, I think of my role as a dad. And I'm constantly praising Ivy May. If you hang out with me long enough, whether you ask for it or not, I'm going to show you some picture of Ivy or some funny video, and I'm going to make sure you watch it till the end and make sure you laugh at it. Why? Because I love her. And I want you to love her as well. I'm beyond thankful for her, and so I continually put her in front of people. I love who she is and what she's doing, and so I want to boast about her. But what about God? Do we talk about God in the same way? And for you, it's not going to be Ivy May, but it might be your daughter. It might be your son. It might be your favorite sports team. It's probably not the Beavs. It might be, you fill in the blank, a TV show. Yet he's, he's calling us to a more robust view than the proclamations we have about various aspects, aspects of our life. Do we bring God up in conversation? Are we striving to figure out a way to bring him up to, to boast of God? You see, as a priesthood, we are to collectively proclaim the excellencies of God for one another, to our friends and to those with ears. For Scripture says, with those with ears, let them hear. You see, and this is not a simplified role for the pastor or the campus minister or the missionary. But again, it is a calling for those in the priesthood, those that are part of the spiritual belonging, spiritual building of Christ. It's for you and me. So I urge us to be people that habitually praise God for who he is and what he has done. Rest and meditate in who Christ is, what he's done, and how he radically has changed you. For if, if we proclaim him, if we praise him, I guarantee you the gospel will be brought up. And the beauty is when the gospel is brought up, people are radically changed. We get to invite more people into the priesthood of God. But not only do we, do we have our lives changed vis uh, audibly, we also have it changed visually. We live a life that glorifies God. In verse 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that you may speak against them as evildoers, and they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter calls his recipients sojourners and exiles to remind them of who they are and that ultimately their home is heaven. This is not your home, just as it was not their home. Therefore, we don't need to live like we are a resident here. Don't adopt their customs, their standards, their values, because our lifestyle ought to be one that is different, and it ought to be one that visually looks different. 
I mean, just imagine if we went to England together, and immediately I got off the plane and started talking in a British accent everywhere I went. And I can tell you, my, I'm not even going to try my accent because it's that bad. And everywhere I go, I'm always talking about tea and crumpets and the queen. You know, it wouldn't take long before you'd be like, Davey, what are you doing? Like, stop it. They're like, I know you. You hate tea. You always drink coffee. And you could care less about the queen. Yet Peter's ultimately saying, hey, don't act like you're British when you're American. Don't act like you were made for this world when you were really made for another. Rather, our lives should look different than the world's for them to actually notice us. And as Peter even says here, they might actually see us as evildoers in the midst of the different ways in which we act. But Peter's saying, for the good deeds that are done for, for Christ will bring God glory. And at the end of days, we want God to receive his glory. So how do we glorify God? Here he kind of lays out, we abstain or literally distance ourselves from the passions of the flesh. We literally walk the other way from those desires. We abstain from desires of the world and align ourselves to Christ. See, it's, it's a common saying that we live in the world, but not of the world. He's calling us to redirect our gaze and therefore redirect our very life. So we have to wrestle with the question, does my life look any different than the world's? Besides Sunday mornings, or maybe some evening throughout the week when I'm involved in a community group or a parachurch ministry, does my life look any different? Would my coworkers know of my heavenly identity? Would my classmates, would my friends, would even my family? Do I read what everybody else reads and watch what everybody else watches? Do I drink what everybody else drinks, say what everybody else says? You see, we have been marked by God. We have been marked by God. And instead of hiding that mark, we are to live boldly and proudly for Christ. For he died for you. And we are to live for him. See, Peter's ultimately calling us to live out the reality of who we are because of what has been done for us and to us. Yet he acknowledges this is going to be hard. Calls it a war. Literally says we have to wage war against it. And once again, I urge you to, to link arms and community for this war. Going to battle alone is foolish. Yet if you go to battle with those around you in the armor of God, you will be victorious and God will be glorified. So link arms and live for him. You see, the gospel is the greatest transformative event in our lives. For it forever changes our life trajectory. We went from death to life from not being a people to being God's people. From being alone to being part of the family of God. We have been given a glorious status. So now we embrace that status and live out 
those roles. And we praise God for the gospel. In your name, let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that in the midst of this world, we can cling to the fact that we were not made for it. And Lord, with that, we were given a new status and a new role within that, Lord. May we be people that embraced the priesthood that you have called us to, that you have aligned us with. And we link arms with our brothers and sisters and see the value in Christian community and gospel community. And may we go forth to be people that praise the excellencies of your name, that proclaim your goodness, Lord, and that live a life that looks different to the watching world that as they watch, we may point them to you. God, we praise you for your son, Jesus, in whom we have life. In your name, amen.